last week we interrupted our study of the events of the cross and we looked at a text from Luke chapter 10 where we saw the lordship of the Father over the revelation of truth. We saw the lordship of the Son and we saw the blessedness of the disciples. Well, today through a series of events in God's providence, Brother Rick had been scheduled to preach, but yesterday he needed to make a decision regarding whether to go to Louisville. His wife's aunt had passed away. His wife was in Louisville there when she passed away, and Rick determined that he needed to go, absolutely in agreement with that, to be with family there, and so I was assigned the task of preaching once again. So what I'm going to do today is we're going to do a part two regarding the sovereignty of God over the revelation of truth. And what we will examine today is the question, does God desire for all to be saved? Because we have passages of scripture which would seem to indicate that God has a desire for people to be saved, that he doesn't desire for the wicked to perish. But at the same time, we have the passages of Scripture that we examined last week, where God emphatically says that he is sovereign over truth, and where the Scriptures teach emphatically that no one even can believe unless God grants them the ability to believe. So today, we consider... Does God desire for all to be saved? First of all, to review a little bit, look over at Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And we saw here, verses 21 and following, In that hour Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Jesus is praising God that he hid things from certain people. And what were those things? Those things were the very things regarding who Christ was and what he had come to accomplish. And those who rejected Christ and who he was and what he came to accomplish were lost. So this shows Jesus rejoicing that his Father is Lord over the revelation of even saving truth. Jesus goes on to say, Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. And we looked at the fact that when you look at the Scriptures and you consider the subject of election or God's choosing, what reasons do the Scriptures give for God's choosing? It's His own sovereign will, His good pleasure, His own purpose. It doesn't say that God chose based on what people would do. It says that He chose because He wanted to. And we see that emphasized here. Jesus says, All things have been delivered to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. It says here that in a sovereign way, that nobody can know the Father unless the Son specifically wills them to. Now that leads to the question, does the Son will everyone in this sense to know the Father? If he did, wouldn't they all know the Father? Because it says here, one to whom the Son wills to reveal him, knows him. So, with that, we segue into the question, the desire for all to be saved. Now, I will mention straight up from the top here that I'm very thankful I found a a booklet uh, by John Piper. It's available in PDF form online. And it's called, Does God Desire for All to be Saved? I recommend it to you. I will shamelessly today follow his outline and present much of his information today. I give credit where credit is due. It was helpful to me in thinking through this subject over the past few days. Does God desire for all to be saved. I'm not going to defend today the 
sovereign grace, what is sometimes called Calvinistic view of unconditional election. We looked at that a little bit last week. But this view says, and I believe it's biblical, that God, based upon his own sovereign free will and under no compulsion, no constraints whatsoever, chose a certain number of people for salvation and allowed the rest of those people to perish in their sins in time and space as they do not choose him. And that those who were elect cannot be lost, ultimately, but that they are saved. Those who are not elect cannot be saved, ultimately, but they are lost. I'm not defending that today. I'm presupposing that truth today. But today we consider the question of God's desires. Does he desire for all to be saved? Well, there are several key texts. Remember how I've spoken of in the past that you have tracts in the scriptures and that if you're going to understand the full orb of the beauty of the scriptures... You can't just run on one track and ignore the other track because there are many tracks, they're parallel, they're not crossing one another, they're not contradicting one another, they complement one another, but there's some tension in our understanding of how do these fit together. This is one of those subjects, isn't it? Look at passages like we looked at in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus praising God for hiding truth. And then we consider other passages which seem to indicate that God desires for everyone to be saved. How do those fit together? So today we seek to understand that and recognize that we have these two tracks in Scripture. The one track is that God does whatever He pleases and He has elected unconditionally a certain number of people to salvation and He pleases for them to be saved and He does not please for others to be saved. But the second track is understanding the passages of Scripture which at least seem to indicate that he desires for all to be saved and he does not desire for any in particular to perish. So let's consider those today. And I am considering these from what has been called the Calvinistic perspective, as I've already said. And there are different views within the Calvinistic camp. I'm going to present two of those views today. And in many ways, I'll leave you to draw your conclusions. Because I think there is some credence in, in both of these so, let's go to the passages. And maybe, maybe you know where I'm headed with some of these. You who hold to the sovereignty of God over all things, and you talk to people who don't, what are the passages that they bring up? Well, how about 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9? Let's turn there first of all. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. Okay, first of all, we'll just look at this verse. This one verse, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And the Arminian argument is, see, God desires for all to come to repentance. It says he doesn't, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But, obviously, we have to consider context. Is that what Jesus is saying here? Is he saying any, all, in the sense of every human being that ever is born upon the face of the earth? Or is he speaking of any and all, a certain group of people of which you could be part of it or not part of it? Okay, one very possible and I believe a solid interpretation of this passage is to point out that in the context, the scoffers are being addressed who say, well, where's the promise of God's coming? Because look at the world. Everything is just continuing on as it always has. One argument is, well, they are willfully ignorant of the fact that it hasn't continued on like it always has because at one time, all but eight people were destroyed in the flood. Basically, all life except for eight and the animals on the ark are wiped out. So it hasn't continued always. But remember, God is not slack because to him, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. God is not slack concerning his promises. Look at verse 8. 
But, beloved, do not forget this one thing. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward whom? Toward us. The key here is, who is the us? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's a very plausible and sound interpretation of this passage to say that the us is believers. To whom was this letter written? You realize that there isn't a book in the New Testament that was written to unbelievers. There's not a book in the New Testament written to unbelievers. The audience is always those who at least profess faith. Even though in their midst there were very often unbelievers or heretics. So who's the us? It is the elect. Why hasn't God come yet? This is the one reason that we have to know why Jesus hasn't returned yet from the scriptures. He hasn't come yet because all the elect aren't saved. And so it's not because he is a slacker regarding his promise. It's actually that he's fulfilling his promise that all the elect would be saved. And he will return once all the elect are saved. Okay, that's a very plausible interpretation of that passage. It doesn't have to mean all Every, as in every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth, God desires for them all to be saved. But the specific context, I believe, says God desires for each one of his elect to be saved. Okay, now look over at 1 Peter chapter 2. Or, excuse me, Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy 2. And consider verse 4. Speaking of God, it says, Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the Arminian would look at that and say, Well, see here, it's clear that God desires for all men to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, we ask ourselves a question again. What is the context does the all men statement here refer to every man, woman, and child who is ever born on the globe? There is another plausible interpretation, and this is often promoted in the Sovereign Grace Calvinistic camp, that the all men there doesn't refer to exclusively everyone globe, because what do we see in the context? Go up to verse 1. Therefore I exhort first that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now does that mean that we are required by God to pray for every man, woman, and child on the face of the globe? Is that what that is teaching? Not necessarily. Because then it says, For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. So it's a very plausible interpretation to say that this is teaching... That God is saying we should pray for all kinds of people. All kinds of people. And that when he says, who desires all men to be saved, he's saying he desires all kinds of people to be saved. He hasn't just set his affection on the Israelites, but he's brought in Gentiles. He hasn't just decided that the poor are going to make it in and the rich will be out. He hasn't just decided that the intelligent or the unintelligent are going to come in, but all kinds of people, regardless of their station, their rank, their nationality, all kinds of people. I think that's a very plausible interpretation of this passage. So there are two of the passages. Ah, but what do we say about Ezekiel 18? Ezekiel 18. Now, as we consider these, I'm working through these quickly because I'm going to present another view from the Reformed camp, which takes a little bit different look at this subject. And what I'm saying is that these are both plausible views. And I started with two passages there which I think are a little easier to interpret as God not desiring for all to be saved. And I'm working towards the ones that are a little more difficult to say God doesn't desire all to be saved. Okay? And this is one of those. This is one of those. In Ezekiel 18, 
And let's begin with 21. It says, If a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? And then look at verse 32. God says, For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. An immediate reading of this would seem to indicate that God is saying he does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. In other words, there's some sense in which he desires for the wicked to repent and not to continue in their own wickedness. Now, this has been explained in uh, one way. Some from the Reformed camp would say the context of this is physical death. And that the one who is wicked under the Old Covenant will be cursed with physical death. And they would say the context is not so much salvation, whether God desires someone to be saved, but it's in the context of Old Covenant people, and God did not desire them to continue in such a path that he would have to punish them with death. Okay? But, in one sense, it becomes a little bit difficult to interpret it in that way because there were both believers and unbelievers under the old covenants because very clearly in Hebrews it says some fell in the wilderness because they didn't have faith they didn't have faith so God says do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die says the Lord God and not that he should turn from his ways and live another passage then Look at Matthew 23. Matthew 23. Jesus pronouncing judgment upon the scribes, upon the Pharisees, upon wicked Jerusalem. But he says, and remember, Jesus is God, the second person of the Godhead. In verse 37 of Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till I say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What do we see here? It seems Jesus is saying, God desired for you to repent, but you were not willing. This one is the hardest. One, to interpret in such a way as to say that God has no desire whatsoever for the non-elect or the lost to be saved and to repent. Again, it could be discussed in the context of the people of Israel and God had a unique covenant with the people of Israel under the old covenant. And this is Jesus speaking as a prophet to those people saying your final judgment has come upon you and that God oftentimes called you to repentance but you did not turn. But it does seem to indicate in this text that there was a desire by God and a genuine and a sincere desire by God for wicked people to turn from their sin yet they did not and they indicated that they were not the elect. Were the majority of Pharisees elect? No, they were not. And they rejected Christ. So this leads us to another consideration, another view. John Piper says this at the beginning of his booklet. 
My aim here is to show from Scripture that the simultaneous existence of God's will for all persons to be saved and His will to elect unconditionally those who will actually be saved is not a sign of divine schizophrenia or exegetical confusion. A corresponding aim is to show that unconditional election therefore does not contradict biblical expressions of God's compassion for all people and does not nullify sincere offers of salvation to everyone who is lost among all the peoples of the world. So what he's saying is, it is possible for God, in one sense, to elect unconditionally, and in that sense, to desire even the judgment of the non-elect. And at the same time, in another sense, to have a desire that all be saved. Now, we say, first of all, as we do to all things, what saith the scriptures? What saith the scriptures? Do we have to look at all these four passages that I just looked at and say, no, those cannot mean that God in any way, shape, or form has a desire to see the non-elect saved or that there's a grief when he sees the wicked continuing in wickedness and ending up in judgment. Now, I'll let you know where I'm coming from here. I've always been taught the view and I've always held the view that there, there, are, there are not two wills in God. But to say there are two wills in God, it makes God schizophrenic. And therefore, it is God's will that the lost be damned and that's the end of it. What I'm saying is that I believe that there are some sound arguments to show, and we're going to look at some of those now, that it is possible for God to desire something in one sense and not to desire it in another sense, at the same time, without contradiction, without confusion. Okay? Let's consider that for a moment. So... Piper says this, I quote again, affirming the will of God to save all while also affirming the unconditional election of some implies that there are at least two wills in God or two ways of willing. It implies that God decrees one state of affairs while also willing and teaching that a different state of affairs should come to pass. This distinction in the way God wills has been expressed in various ways throughout the centuries. It's not a new contrivance. For example, theologians have spoken of sovereign will and moral will, efficient will and permissive will, secret will and revealed will, will of decree and will of command, decretive will and preceptive will, will of sign, will of good pleasure, etc. I'll explain one example of that. We talk about God's sovereign will or His will of decree compared to his written will or his will of prescription. And let's talk about the written will first. Does God will, according to his written word, that his people engage in sexual immorality? No, he doesn't. But is the act of his people engaging in sexual immorality outside of his sovereign power and his sovereign purpose? No, it's not. We're going to look at several examples in Scripture to make it absolutely clear that there are things which God desires in one sense, but He doesn't desire in another. And those two fit together regarding His sovereign will and His revealed will in His Word. Okay? So let's consider, first of all, the very death of Christ. Did God decree that Christ would die on the cross? Would you say he willed it then? He willed, he desired that Christ would die on the cross. Did God write and command that it is sinful to murder? Would you say that God desires for people not to murder? Was Christ murdered? Was that part of God's plan? You see what I'm saying? 
There is one sense in which God desired for Christ to be murdered and another sense in which he did not desire Christ to be murdered. Piper says the betrayal of Jesus by Judas was a morally evil act and inspired immediately by Satan, Luke 22.3. Yet in Acts 2.23, Luke says, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The betrayal was sin and it involved the instrumentality of Satan, but it was part of God's ordained plan. That is, there is a sense in which God willed the delivering up of his son, even though the act was sin. And that's as clear an example from the scriptures as you can get. God desired for Jesus to go to the cross, but yet it was sin to put him on the cross. Now, we affirm very emphatically, James, chapter 1, God cannot sin, and he does not tempt people to sin. So, we affirm the confessions, such as the Westminster and the Second London Confession of Faith, when it says that God uses secondary causes. That there are secondary causes. In other words, God, obviously from Scripture, is not responsible for the sin of Judas. God is not the author of that evil. But there was a sense in which God sovereignly decreed that evil in which it took place. But we know Judas was a willing participant in that. And Judas was that secondary cause. And therefore Judas is the one responsible for this and not God. Now, we reach a place with all of this where we can sit and talk about it for hours... But we must simply, ultimately, accept what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach that God is righteous and He's not evil. But the Scriptures also teach very clearly, since God predicted that Judas would betray Jesus, that God knew that Judas would betray Jesus, and the only way God could know that Judas betrayed Jesus was if God decreed that Judas would betray Jesus. Therefore, God decreed it and he saw to it that it took place without being responsible for that evil action. That's what the scriptures teach. And I will simply stand and proclaim what the scriptures teach in this matter. Now, my experience in discussing Arminianism, Calvinism, is this. I believe that the Arminian framework, let's call it a desk. I've heard this illustration before, it was helpful to me. You can have a theological system that's like a desk. You know those old roll-top desks? Roll that lid back. It's got all those little slots in there. You may have a slot in your theological system for every text and every argument that's thrown against you. But you may have the wrong desk. You may have the wrong desk. You've got a slot in your desk for everything, but if you've got the wrong desk, then you need to switch desks. I think Arminianism is the wrong desk. And I think what Arminianism does is it says, no, it cannot be possible that God would decree unconditionally some to salvation and others not to salvation because I don't think that's fair. That would make God unfair. That's one thing that they would say. They usually don't put it in that terms. Usually they say something to the effect of, well, it wouldn't be genuine love. If God has to make someone love him against their will, then that's not really love. And God cannot violate love because love is, a, is an expression of his very nature and character. Therefore, he, he has chosen to give man self-determination. He's chosen to give man the ability to decide whether or not man will choose him. Now, but, 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 but consider this for a moment. Consider this for a moment. One, we say, what say the scriptures? And again, I'm not seeking to defend election so much. We've already looked at that. 
when we see the reasons for God choosing some and leaving others in their sins, it's because it says he wanted to. It doesn't say anything about this human determination and all of these things. Okay, so I think they've got the wrong desk. But consider this with me for a moment. In one sense, I think, logically speaking, it would be unloving for someone to force something upon someone else that they don't desire to do, and that person then is not really genuinely responding to them in love. Let me give you an example. I've, I've seen uh, a science fiction program where people have abilities that are ultra-enhanced, and so they can do fantastic things. One guy has a fight-flight syndrome that's just ultra-souped up, you know, so he can get really strong and push cars out of the way and everything else. Well, there's one woman in there that has the ability, by looking in someone's eyes and, eyes and communicating to them, to do something they call in, in the show pushing them. Basically, it's making them do something that she wants them to do. Now, if she looks into the eyes of, of a man and she says, you will be infatuated with me and absolutely in love with me, and she is forcing that man to love her, and he has no no will in the matter, no control over the matter, and he wouldn't love her otherwise, because let's say he's married and has a happy family, but she has the ability to basically brainwash him and make him do that, that's not really love on his part, is it? Because he has been pushed. Well, that's the way the Arminian looks at the Calvinistic view, the sovereignty of God view that we take about God. They say, that wouldn't really be love because people aren't really responding genuinely. God is making them do something they don't want to do. That's not love. But that analogy is, is a false analogy. Because here's the reality of the situation. What if we take my analogy of the woman here in this film who's pushing people, what if there is someone who has no ability whatsoever to feel the emotion of love or to act in a loving way? And it's just an analogy, I realize that. But let's say they're dead in that sense. They're dead to be able to do what is right in that sense. And she uses her power to give them the ability to be able to love and then they automatically respond in love to her because she has given them the ability to do that. And the, the necessary consequence or the, the obvious thing that will happen is she will be loved by them after she gives the ability. Is that an unloving thing? Is that a violation of this person's will? That they have this massive handicap and someone overcomes that and then they love that person in response? No, that's not a violation of someone's will. That's not unloving. That's what God does. Because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We don't have the ability to love God. It's not that God makes us love Him and we really wouldn't and we never really want to and we would continue not to want to, but He's just making us this little robot that's brainwashed and I love you, I love you, I love you, but it's not from the heart and it means nothing. No! The, the fact of the matter is that God gives us an ability that we didn't have before. Namely, to love Him. And that that's a gracious gift. And then we respond once we're given that ability. We respond by loving Him. So the Arminian desk is based on a logical argument which breaks down. And it's not based on the clear expressed teachings of Scripture. And we'll continue to see that as we go on, but right now we're considering does the Bible teach that there are some things that God wants at one level but he does not want at another level? And as we've said, the death of Christ, I think, is a clear example of that. In God's revealed written will, it was against his will for those people to murder Jesus in his sovereign will and purpose he absolutely desired it to take place. Okay? Are there any other examples of, of things such as that in Scripture where God has two wills? One is from Revel, Revelation 17, 16 and 17. The war against the Lamb. Revelation 17, 16 and 17. 
Waging war against the Lamb is sin, Piper points out, and sin is contrary to the will of God. Nevertheless, the angel says literally here in Revelation 17, 16, and 17, and I quote from the scriptures, God gave into their, the ten kings, hearts to do his will and to perform one will and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. It says that God put it into their hearts to do his will, which was in violation of of another aspect of his will. Again, we're just simply asking, what do the scriptures teach? What do the scriptures teach? In one sense, God wanted these ten kings to rebel, but in another sense, very clearly, it was against his law or his written will for them to rebel. The scriptures teach that there are two wills of God in that respect. What about another example? The hardening work of God. What does it say in Romans chapter 9? It says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Did Pharaoh commit sin by not letting the people of Israel go? Absolutely, he committed sin by holding them in slavery and not letting them go. Was there a sense in the revealed written will of God that he had decreed or or that he desired that Pharaoh not sin? Yes. But was it God's sovereign will to harden Pharaoh's heart and see that he did not let the people go? Yes. Yes and yes. These, I believe, are the clear conclusions of Scripture. We wrestle with it logically. We wrestle with it emotionally. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. But the fact of the matter is, right now we're asking, what sayeth the Scriptures? What sayeth the Scriptures? So in Exodus 8.1, the Lord says to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. So that was God's command. Thus says the Lord, let my people go. And in one sense we could say that was God's will. Let my people go. But what did we see if you look at Exodus 4.21? God says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Was it God's will that Pharaoh's heart be hardened and not let the people go? Yes. These two go hand in hand. The Apostle Paul speaks about the Israelites in Romans 11, and it says that God has hardened their hearts. At the same time, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, I wish that I could be condemned if they would be saved. Again, we ask, what saith the Scriptures? And you see, we're multiplying evidences, aren't we, from the Scriptures, where we have both of these things. What about Eli and the example of Eli and his sons? The Lord desired to put them to death because of their wickedness. The word desired there in that clause that he desired to put them to death is the same Hebrew word used in Ezekiel where it says God does not desire the death of the wicked. So there's one sense in which God desires it and there's another sense in which he doesn't desire it. Are we at the point of wrestling here now? (laughs) Well, we'll we'll talk a little bit about this in conclusion. Does God delight in the punishment of the wicked? Yes. The scriptures say so. Like in that account regarding Eli's sons. Does God not desire and not delight in the death of the wicked? Yes. The scriptures say that he does not. How can that be? because he desires it in one sense while not desiring it in another sense. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Even in our 
human frailty with our simple natures not being very complex, there are ways in which we understand desiring something at one level but not desiring it at another level. Desiring something in one sense while not desiring it in another sense. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Okay, well, Arminians have tried to overcome this tension. Some of them have by saying there is no sovereign decree of God. Piper says this when he asks, how extensive is the sovereign will of God? He says, R.T. Forster and B.P. Markson try to overcome the tension between God's will of decree and God's will of command by asserting there is no such thing as God's sovereign will of decree. So they see, okay, we've got these texts, we've got these tracts, they seem to be contradictory to one another, there seem to be tension, so how do we fix the problem? Rip up one of the tracts and ditch it, because it can't be. But how many different examples have we just looked at where it is? And it's clearly taught in Scripture. The way that we handle things like that is not to cut passages out of our Bibles. It's not to figuratively cut them out by saying, oh, well, they can't mean that. They've got to mean something else, so I'm just not going to even consider them as meaning that. So here's what they say, and I quote these two men. Nothing in Scripture suggests that there is some kind of will or plan of God which is inviolable. Nothing suggests there is any plan or will of God which cannot be violated or changed by His creatures or by the universe or whatever. In other words, God's not really sovereign because He may want something and no matter how much He wants it, His creatures, His people, His universe can thwart His plan. There were a whole lot of people trying to thwart the crucifixion of Christ. I propose that God is sovereign. He has a will of decree. And not even the devil of hell can stop him. So let's consider a few of these things. Jesus said that the parables were given so that they, people, may indeed see but not perceive, may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. There was a sovereign will of God that would not be violated, and even the very parables were spoken so that that plan of God would be carried out and the people that God did not want to be, reveal truth to would not have that truth to them. And we preached that. I looked at that all last week, didn't I? It didn't matter how much any of his creatures wanted Jesus off of that cross, he was going to that cross. And God saw to it that that decree was carried out and there was nothing that could thwart his plan. The scriptures are clear about that. We already saw that from Acts chapter 4, didn't we? That they carried out everything that God had foreordained, had purposed that they would do. If they could have overcome that and God just left that up to chance, you realize the probability of all those prophecies coming to place in that time and space? The probability, if it was just random chance and God had not decreed it and made sure that it happened, the probability that those things would take place were astronomical. Just off the charts, improbable, not going to happen. It's, it's like the whole idea of evolution and just random chance. And somehow life came from non-life just through all these random chance processes. It doesn't matter how many billions, trillions, gazillions, gugillions, however many years you want to talk about. It's not going to happen. It wouldn't have happened if God had not decreed it. And if that decree was not unchangeable. God has a right to restrain evil. And he has a will not to restrain it in certain circumstances. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it 
wherever he wishes. He has the sovereign power to turn the hearts of kings. He does whatever he wants in that respect. There are times, Piper points out, when he's this right, because he intends for human evil to run its course. For example, God meant to put the sons of Eli to death. Therefore, he willed that they not listen to their father's counsel. There are times when God, in his sovereign plan, does not change people's hearts or minds because his sovereign will is for them to die or to be judged. What do we see also from Scripture, though, regarding God's sovereign will? He has final control over all calamities and disasters, doesn't he? He has control over all calamities and disasters, ultimately. Amos 3.6 Does evil befall a city unless the Lord has done it? It's talking about calamity upon a city. Does that happen and the Lord hasn't done it? Now, if a nation comes in and they go in and they wipe out another city, have they done wrongly? Yeah, pretty much under all circumstances. If they become the aggressor and they go in and they destroy someone else, they have sinned. But yet, is that part of the sovereign will and plan of God? Absolutely. Isaiah 45, 7. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make peace and create woe. I am the Lord who does all these things. Lamentations 3, 37 through 38. Who has commanded it and it came to pass unless the Lord has ordained it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and evil come? Notice here, if they're going to say that there is no sovereign will of God that is inviolable, what do you do with passages of Scripture like this? You've got, you've got to go through gymnastics and contortions linguistically and everything else to try and read them away. Usually what, what, what I've experienced in their writings is they present their rational argument and then they don't even deal with texts like this. That's usually the way that you'll see it done in their writing. Some of them are going to be scholarly enough to give an answer to some of the texts. Usually they just gloss over or ignore them. That's the way it usually, usually takes place. Here's an example of the will of God in two different senses in the writings of Peter. First Peter 2.15 it says, such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, should we pursue doing right? Notice it calls that the will of God. Another, in 4 and verse 2 of First Peter, live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Is that something we have a role in, a part in? Living for the will of God. Absolutely. But notice also in 1 Peter, that word will refers to a state of affairs that God sovereignly brings about. 1 Peter 3.17 For it is better to suffer for doing right, if that should be God's will, than for doing wrong. That's a situation where the word will of God is used to refer to suffering. People inflicting suffering upon you in the context. It's not talking about suffering from a heart attack. It's talking about suffering from persecution. And it says that that may be God's will sovereignly for you to face such persecution. There are things regarding God's sovereign will over the actions of men. Paul says in Acts 18.21, I will return to you if God wills. 1 Corinthians 4.19, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. 1 Corinthians 16.7, I do not want to see you just now in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. He's speaking about God's sovereign will. You're here today because it was God's sovereign will for you to be here. You could not have been anywhere else today than right here in God's sovereign will. Proverbs 16.1 The plans of the mind belong to man 
but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. A man's mind plans his own way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 16.9 Proverbs 16.33 The lot is cast into the lap, but the decision is holy from the Lord. And we could read on and on and on and on and on. Is there a sovereign will of God that cannot be violated? Absolutely. So we don't want to do as the Armenians do and say, no, there's no such thing. Well, is it possible then for God to, in one sense, will the unconditional election of a group of people and in another sense grieve when those who are not elected are cast into judgment? Is there one sense in which God could desire for only this certain group of people to be saved but then in some other sense desire that all be saved? Well, we've already seen that God could desire that Christ go to the cross and in another sense not desire that wickedness take place. So you see, it becomes a matter of how are we looking at this? We've seen that God has a sovereign will and He will accomplish His purposes. Psalm 115 verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. So in the sovereign will of God, does He want everyone to be saved? If He did, then they would be. Because He has the power to do exactly what He wants to do. And He does, the Scriptures say, everything He pleases in His sovereign will. He does whatever He wants to do and He will accomplish it. But consider this, my friends. And this this is good. Both the Calvinist and the Arminian have to, in some sense, wrestle with this issue. Arminianism doesn't do away with, with this tension. Unless you go to the extreme of just ignoring the bulk of Scripture, which they do sometimes. But logically speaking, Arminianism doesn't get rid of the tension. In many of these matters, both Calvinists and Arminians affirm two wills in God when they ponder deeply over passages such as 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. Piper says this, Both can say that God wills for all to be saved. But then when queried why all are not saved, both Calvinist and Arminian answer that God is committed to something even more valuable than saving all. Did you get that? The Arminian who holds to any degree of biblical view about God's power, and most Arminians you realize will say that God is sovereign, They have to say that God, if He wanted to, could save everyone. So then the next question is, well, what's keeping Him from doing it? Why is He not doing it? Hey, do you believe that God could have chosen to save everyone? In one sense, we would say yes. He has the power to do it. Now we ask the next question, is everyone going to be saved? Is everyone elect? I hope all of you say no. (laughs) Or we'll have to talk. I'll have to preach another sermon. You guys won't ever get lunch. Okay? Okay. So if God has the power to save everyone... But it's clear that he's not going to save everyone. Why not? And that's where the Calvinists and the Arminian differ. It's at that point. You see, they still have to wrestle with the reality that God has the power to save everyone, but that there's some reason that he's not doing it. 
They've got to deal with that. And when they say, oh, no, we're the ones that have to deal with that type of issue, they're not recognizing the weakness of their own reasoning and their own system. So what do they say? Notice this, I quote Piper again. Both can say that God wills for all to be saved, but then when queried why all are not saved, both Calvinist and Arminian answer that God is committed to something even more valuable than saving all. What does the Arminian say God is most committed to above even saving all people? The free will of man. Giving human beings self-determination so they can choose their own destiny. They say God is absolutely committed to and more committed to even than the salvation of all peoples the free will and self-determination of mankind. And is that not what we see practically carried out in the Arminian camp? That ultimately it all comes down to the one inviolable thing in the entire universe, if everything else is gone, is the free will of man. And God will not violate the free will of man. That God wants, in one sense, more than anything else, even that he wants all people to be saved, he wants man to have free will. And that's why we say Arminianism is a man-centered doctrine. It's a man-centered doctrine. But what does the Calvinist say? They say the greater value, and I'm quoting Piper again, is the manifestation of the full range of God's glory in wrath and mercy and the humbling of man so that he enjoys giving all credit to God for his salvation. We say it's the glory of God. That God has determined that he will glorify himself and in his wisdom he knows the best way to glorify himself is for some to be saved and others to be lost. You see, that is a God-centered doctrine. And now we simply ask, which is biblical? Is man at the center of the universe or is God at the center of the universe? Is man at the center of God's affections and desires? And God says, whatever I'll do, I will not violate human self-determination. Or is it God's glory? And has God stated in His Word, such as in Isaiah 43, that... Or Isaiah 47, that I did not save you for your own sake. For my own sake, I have done this. For I will not give my glory to another. There are multiple places in Scripture where God says, I have redeemed you, I have delivered you, not for your sake, but for my own sake. Because I will get glory. For whom was this universe created? All things were created by Him and for Him. Colossians 1.16 we proclaim the sovereignty and the glory of God. And we recognize that Arminians have to see this and they have to wrestle with this. Now consider this for a moment. Arminians will point to a passage such as 1 Timothy 2.4 where it says God desires all to be saved. And they will say that this shows that man has free will. You know what I say? It doesn't say anything about man's free will in that text whatsoever. It's not even addressing it. It's not addressing it. It says God desires all to be saved, come to the knowledge of the truth. They will say, see, that shows that God will not violate human self-determination. That passage isn't even talking about that. They have to bring that presupposition to that text. And we ask the question, does that text, or does the Bible support their desk? Do they have the right desk? They say they don't have the right desk. We've already looked at multiple scriptures to show that they have the wrong desk. Because God is sovereign. He has decreed. He does desire even wicked things to take place in one sense and decree them, while in another sense not desiring them. So Piper says this, this is utterly crucial to see. For what it implies is that 1 Timothy 2.4 does not settle the momentous issue of God's higher commitment which restrains him from saving all. There is no mention here of free will, nor is there mention of sovereign, prevenient, efficacious grace. C. 
see it doesn't address the Calvinistic side of things either. That passage is simply not talking about that matter. If all we had was this text, we could only guess what restrains God from saving all. See the point that he's making? That text doesn't teach us what restrains God from saving all people. It says he desires to save all, but it doesn't say why he doesn't save all. We have to come into that text with an understanding already of that if we're going to promote that. When free will is found in this verse, it is a philosophical, metaphysical assumption, not an exegetical conclusion. The verse doesn't deal with free will. It doesn't deal with free will. The, the assumption is that if God wills in one sense for all to be saved, then he cannot in another sense will that only some be saved. That assumption is not in the text, nor is it demanded by logic, nor is it taught in the rest of Scripture. Therefore, 1 Timothy 2.4 does not settle the issue, it creates it. Both Arminians and Calvinists must look elsewhere to answer whether the gift of human self-determination the glory of divine sovereignty is the reality that restrains God's will to save all people. So, I think what is being presented here is very plausible. That in one sense, God can will something and desire something. And in another sense, he does not will it and does not desire it. R.L. Dabney wrote, and he quoted from a biography of George Washington, in which it was recounted that a certain major, Major Andre, had jeopardized the safety of the young nation through rash and unfortunate treasonous acts. This biographer... Chief Justice Marshall says of the death warrant signed by Washington, and I quote, Perhaps on no occasion of his life did the commander-in-chief obey with more reluctance the stern mandates of duty and of policy. End quote. Piper says this, Dabney observes that Washington's compassion for Andre was real and profound. He also had, quote, plenary power to kill or to save alive. Why then did he sign the death warrant? Dabney explains, Washington's volition to sign the death warrant of Andre did not arise from the fact that his compassion was slight or feigned, but from the fact that it was rationally counterimposed by a complex of superior judgments of wisdom, duty, patriotism, moral indignation. So what's he saying? George Washington is put in a place where he has the power to execute a treasonous man. And as he is doing this and writing out the order that will decree his execution, his pen is shaking because of the emotion and the desire in one sense not to see this man die. But what was it that compelled him to sign that? It was the constraints of wisdom and justice and all of these others. Now, we can look at it from the perspective of two lenses. You know, in photography, you can have a wide-angle lens that sees broadly, or a narrow-angle lens that focuses in. Based on everything we've seen, would we say that it is possible for God to be able to focus in narrowly and see the consequences of sin, the heartache and brokenness that it brings about, and to be grieved over the death of the wicked, while at the same time then being able to zoom out and to see his sovereign plan and the effects that this will have to bring him glory. And so in the same situation, he can desire for this event to take place while yet not desiring it to take place. You see, that's possible in us, is it not? Have you ever been there before? Where in one sense, you wanted 
and felt compelled and constrained that something would take place, but in another sense, he did not desire that to take place? And both desires were right? Well, just consider this with me. If we can have such emotions and such a situation, God, who is far more complex than us and even in many ways beyond our understanding, cannot He, when looking at things from the wide angle and then from the narrow angle, cannot He have both at the same time? And so I don't think that it presents an illogical situation to say that God has such two wills, nor do I think it is counter to the scriptures to say that there are clearly situations such as the cross where we see this taking place. And so I think then that whether one can look at the passages as we did early on and explain in the context that it doesn't really mean that God desires for all to be saved or whether one looks at them and says no I think some of these indicate that God has this deeper desire I think that either one of those positions can fit within the framework of the sovereignty of God and even what we would call the Calvinistic system I use that word simply because it's helpful to understand not because uh you know, I hold everything John Calvin held to or wanted to exalt him. You realize it was named that after he was dead. The considerations of the doctrines of grace and God's sovereignty, it wasn't something that he said, ah, I've got to get this labeled after me. No way. No way. But the reality is um, both of these views can be held by those who are reformed in their theology. And in my thinking, where I'm at, is some of those passages, such as Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, become very difficult to understand if one says that God does not truly, sincerely grieve over the death of the wicked, the lost. So I believe the scriptures teach that God does both. We can do it. We can focus in narrowly upon someone being executed for a heinous crime. And we can grieve that that person must die. And then step back and see the broad picture of justice being carried out and rejoice that that person will die. I believe God can do so as well. I think the scriptures show that he does. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. I know that there were some complex things we looked at, so again, I recommend to you John Piper's booklet, It's God's Desire, that all be saved, and that, as is Piper's, policy and practice is available for free in PDF form online. And uh, I'm thankful for that. Let's pray. Father, we... uh, we thank, you. we thank you for your word. We thank you for your complexity of character and nature. We thank you for giving some insight into these matters. And we ask that you would help us to understand these and to bring you much glory. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. realize that, that there is a group that believes in reformational theology and